All right, Biruchima, Vaim, everybody. Really, thank you for joining uh, Rationalism versus Mysticism Part 2. So we have some uh, new faces here. We'll wait, I guess, for Elliot Dweck to walk in. He'll, uh, he'll appreciate the, uh, the review. But, you know, just briefly, I'll, I'll give you a rundown of what I want to do this class. So, you know, I, I promised that we would do uh, a lot of Rabbi Slifkin's book, Rationalism versus Mysticism. And I'm realizing as I'm reading it that I'm more interested in the in the mysticism side of stuff, which I guess from last week's class was pretty apparent, than I am in the in the rationalistic stuff. And just to uh, to recap a couple of things we did last week. So we started off last week. We said that there was once a time there was this master who had uh, philosophy classes, and every day a cat would walk in and he would tie the cat to a tree. And then the next generation, what happened? They would find a cat to go bring it and tie it to a tree before the class. And, you know, just out of respect for what they did the pre previous generation. And then the generation after that, they started debating the, uh, the spiritual powers of, of tying a tree to uh, a cat to a tree in order to, you know, uh, get the gods to do some kind of crazy things. Um, and then finally, some guy wrote a whole book about cat tree tying. And Rabbi Fa'ud, who, who gives the story, says that a lot of um, Jewish learning today concerns the holy cat, you know, and, and tying this cat to a tree is somehow how things could devolve in a way from something that made a lot of sense once upon a time to something that no longer really has so much sense to it. So that's a very rational point of view, but something that actually is very incisive and it makes a lot of sense. Then we discussed, what does epistemology mean? Does anybody know? Oh, right, the study of studying things. That's right. the way I think Who's about it. In the no, no, listen, we, we like participation. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot, if you participate, I'll give you extra food next oh, week. Yeah. <laughs> you got, you're already in heaven, I see. Baruch Hashem. That's great. Um, so, okay, so yeah, we discussed epistemology, um, and we said that there's different ways of, of how do we know what we know? How do we analyze what we analyze? Um, and it's really interesting because there's so many different things we can learn. Baruch Haba from this concept of epistemology and you know there's a lot of different debates about how should we know what we know um and we discussed this idea your brain is in the world on the one hand you could say okay so then i'm just a little nothing that doesn't really matter but then on the other hand the world is happening in your brain and you wouldn't know about a world unless you had the brain to know about this world so there's some people you know you meet them and they say oh i'm nothing you know i'm just so humble i'm a nobody you know, um, uh, and they try to escape the, uh, the difficulties of life in a way by doing that. And they say, I'm not arrogant. I'm just so humble that I know I'm nothing. And it's like, are you nothing? Because I see you sitting there right now. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost a little bit of a phony humility. Because if you're here to talk about it, you're not nothing. You must be something. You know, and we discuss this idea of where does God end and where do you begin? What does this mean? For, if God's infinity and you're finite, how does that make sense for an infinite being to exist, you know, concomitantly at the same time? as a finite being, it must be that there's some kind of overlap, you know, and there's different people try to make the distinction in different ways. There's a lot of the Hasidim will say there's like simtsum, that God subtracted of himself to make room for man, but that makes zero philosophical sense because how could an infinite being subtract of himself? And then you could say like that Rambam, that God is just separate and it's, it's a very similar idea. But then you could also say that, you know, in a way we can't talk about it. We don't really know. Maybe there's some kind of continuity between us and God that's really ineffable or impossible to speak about. And speaking of ineffable, which is a very funny thing to say because ineffable means things that you can't even talk about. And that's generally how most of my philosophical conversations <laughs> with my friends goes is, Michael, just be quiet. You know, we discussed that last time as well. Um, and it didn't work because I'm still here talking. And we also discussed Lao Tzu, who says something very inter interesting in the Tao Te Ching. He says, he who says it does not know. He who knows it does not say. Uh, but I'm saying it. What are you going to do? Well, he wrote the whole book, didn't he? He must have enjoyed what he was doing. So that's kind of this guy, Alan Watts, that I listened to. He says, I have nothing to sell you. I'm not here to teach you anything. That's not my job here. I'm not looking to, you know, convince you of anything. I have no skin in the game. He's saying I'm an entertainer. He says, I do this because I enjoy it. And I love that. I, you know, for me, it's the same. I, I, some, a lot of the time, I feel like I have things to convince of, to people. So I'm not quite on that level. But to me, this is like gun ed and this is like candy for me. I know some people look at me like I'm nuts, which is most of my interactions with these kind of conversations and others. But I very much enjoy these conversations because 
unless you understand your biases and unless you understand where you're coming from, it's very hard to speak about anything and to really get to truth. And we discussed Gan Eden, we discussed this idea that in order to get back to that truth, to that tree of knowledge, which God is so afraid that we're going to eat from, only after eating from Etzadat. There wasn't a problem to eat from Etzachayim before that, but once we ate from Etzadat, it became a problem. We said that the, the, the flaming sword that's spinning around is like the propeller of a plane, where if you look at it head on and you don't know that it's a propeller, you think it's like a wall. But then if you realize it's a propeller, you say, okay, if I move it at quantum speed, then I could kind of get through it. And how do I do that? Oh, only by getting rid of my subjective perception of this as a wall and now understanding, you know, it's just a propeller that's spinning. So those are interesting ideas. William James, we discussed, was a, uh, the father of modern psychology. He said that there are four qualities of the mystical experience. And people who have uh, done psychedelics have spoken about these qualities as well. Um, so the first one is ineffability. It's something that cannot be spoken about. The second one is meaning you, to put words to it is an assault on what it was. And, you know, it's amazing. Hanan Bam, when he talks about God, he says, you can never state what God is positively. You can only state what God is not. This is literally what this is. And it's a very Buddhist idea as well. And, you know, uh, forgive me if I say too many Eastern things, but we'll allow it because it's my class. Um, and nobody, this, we're alone in this room, so nobody else hears this, except for the people who will one day dig up these files and really get me in a lot of trouble. Um, so if you're listening in 10 years and you have a reason to uh, knock me, I made it somewhere. So that's good. Um, so there's this ineffability, and Hanan Bam says that about God. And I think it's the, the meaning of life is the same thing. You can't state positively what the meaning of life is. You can only kind of say, oh, it's not that. It's not just that. You can't reduce it to anything, and you could state what it's not. So ineffability, I think, ties into that. Noetic quality. This one's so interesting. People will have a mystical experience, and they'll come back to now, and you'll say, well, don't you realize you're on some kind of chemical, or don't you realize you must have been just really dehydrated when you were eating that peyote in the desert, and who knows what was going on with you when you had this experience? And they'll say, no, you know, I, I can't put words, I can't express it to you, but for some reason, I knew it was true with every fiber of my being beyond knowledge. It was, I know it more than I know the back of my hand, more than I know knowledge itself. I knew that this was truth. And they said, and there's just no convincing them otherwise. And that's the level of authoritarianism that it has to it, these mystical experiences. And if you're lucky enough to slip into one, that you might have that. And then the other lesser important ones, but it's still important ones, were transiency and passivity, that they're transient and that they're passive experiences. Um, and then we said we were going to discuss some things uh, regarding uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Slifkin's book. But before we do that, I still, you know, it's, I'm enjoying this so much, my ability to just speak about whatever I want. And I think I'm going to pick and choose what I want to uh, say from Rabbi Slifkin. So I want to just share with you um, a couple of things, you know, building off of what we just discussed um, in order to continue to think about these ideas, because I think they're so interesting. And I, you know, we discussed a little bit last week about the ego and, you know, it's such a funny thing because everybody who's trying to have a mystical experience what are they really doing they're kind of they're trying to use their ego to overcome their ego that's like pulling trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps it's like standing up saying all right i'm gonna fly and you just go like this and, ah, you, or like you when you're sitting on the uh, on the airplane and this turbulence you start holding the bottom of your chair you know it makes absolutely no sense or like you know some they compare it uh somebody who's clinging in this philosophical sense it's like somebody who's falling off a cliff and as they're falling, they're like, oh, my God, I'm falling, I'm falling. And then they see a rock falling next to them. And they cling to the rock and they say, OK, this will save me. It's like, don't you realize it's falling at the exact same acceleration as you? Like, it's not going to help you. So it's a funny thing about the, the ego, I think, is that it's exactly the same way. Um, and, you know, it really it, you, you fall into this this pitfall almost of, you know, using something to try to overcome the thing itself. And it's impossible to do that. And that's why I think a lot of the Christian theologians talk about in order to experience a mystical experience, very often, it's something that needs to happen by something called grace. It just kind of happens on its own. It's not something that you can do. And what, are they, what do you mean by that, Michael? Well, I mean, you can't use your ego to overcome your ego. It's something that you need to kind of slip into. It's, it's not doing more, it's doing less. And it's a very hard thing to express to another person, the best thing I can say is if you 
meditate enough or do some other crazy things, which I will never endorse in this shul. Um, but if you do those things, then it, it will probably help you to achieve this state of mind or the state of consciousness. Um, so these are just some of the pitfalls and some of the traps you might fall into. You say, okay, look how great I am. I just overcame my ego. You say, oh, well, that, I guess that was ego. And you can't really escape that. So I want to tell you a story. Yeah, sure. So the same ego, you mean in the way like Freud? Yes, exactly. So that's, I should have clarified that. A lot of people, you know, uh, they say ego. Uh, what do you mean ego? They think I, I mean being egotistical. I don't mean it in that way, like, you know, modern parlance. I mean it more of just the fact that every human being, just by virtue of being a conscious person, has an ego that is kind of like you're saying that in the Freudian sense, you know, uh, in the tug of war between the id and the superego and just maintaining your sense of identity and sense of self, which everybody has, um, you know, and, and what we often want to do is transcend that. And we want to go above that in order to escape very often the difficulties of being an ego. Because once you're a limited ego, what happens? You're subject to all the vicissitudes of life. You could be slapped around by pain and you could run after pleasure. And that's why a lot of these Buddhists will say life is suffering. What they mean by that is not every moment is suffering in that sense. But in a way, a necessary ingredient to life is death. So in a way, you can have this game that we're playing without this yin and the yang. You can't have it without this balance of order and chaos constantly. So it's all around us all the time, no matter where you look. In order to have this plane of existence, this plane of reality, there needs to be this tug of war constantly and this tension between the positive and the negative. And sometimes you're riding the highs and, you're, and then sometimes you're riding the lows and you feel like your whole life is just this up and down, not just bipolar people. All of us have these ups and downs constantly. So what a lot of people are looking for is this escape from that. And the ability to escape from that means, doesn't mean, first of all, that you don't have pain anymore. Pain is different than suffering. Suffering is getting lost in the pain. Pain is just something that'll happen. And, and, but if you identify that pain and just note it and you say, okay, I'm not the pain, I'm the awareness and I'm just consciousness. And then there's the pain or there's the pleasure or there's the you know, self-loathing or there's the hatred or there's the love you're putting a distance between yourself and your thoughts, yourself and your emotions, yourself and whatever's happening in consciousness. Because in real reality, say the mystics, you're not what you think you are. You are just pure consciousness. You're the emptiness, the empty space behind your eyes in a way. And if you could prevent yourself from getting lost, which is the, anybody ever see X-Men, the movie? You know, the movie X-Men, it's a great movie. So there's a lot of them, you know, Professor, Professor X, Professor Charles Xavier, he's like the, the guy in the wheelchair, the bald guy, he's like very wise and his superpower, I think, is that he could kind of read minds. And he's trying to talk to Jean Grey, he's trying to prevent her. She also has the superpower with her mind, even stronger than him, that she can move things around and all that. And she and he looks at her and he's trying to help her and he's trying to save her. Welcome, Dr. Nasser. So um, we're talking about X-Men in case you missed it. Um, yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> And, and uh, Professor X looks at Jean Grey and she's like destroying everything in her path. And he says to her, just don't get lost in it. And I, to me, that was one of the most profound statements in any movie. I'm sure most people just like watch the rest of the movie. For me, I'm still stuck. Up. What did Professor X mean when he said to Jean Grey, don't get lost in it? To me, that was like the most unbelievable thing. Because what he's saying is this deep, deep truth of it's okay to be involved in life and you should get involved in life. And I'm not saying to put a separation between yourself in the sense that you're cold and closed off from reality, but I am saying that it's still, uh, it's still good to just notice what's happening and realize you're not your thoughts. You're not your emotions. Those are things that are happening in consciousness. And if you can learn to dwell as that consciousness, things will probably go a lot better for you. You'd be a lot less neurotic, a lot less panicky, and you'll be the kind of person people can rely on in a time of crisis. And, you know, and, and you could probably enjoy things even more because, in, you know, once you're enjoying things, you're not going to be like, oh, what if it's gone the next moment? You'll just enjoy the thing while it lasts and then you'll let it go. And it's a very difficult thing to impress upon Westerners because we're in this rat race so much. But if we would be spending so many hours meditating, maybe we would be able to cultivate this more. So this is something I try to do. Just I have my short periods of meditation. And it helps me, you know, it helps me to dwell as consciousness. So that was a long-winded recap and a little of a, a bit of an addition. Anybody have any questions so far or comments? Okay, if not, well, I'll tell you this story. 
And now this story to me is so beautiful because it, it says to me the way that we should deal with our egos. A lot of us like to look at the ego and we say, I want to kill the ego. Everyone says, I, you know, my friends kill me when I, when I talk about ego death all the time. And I, I'm enamored about ego death. And they say, you know, enough with the ego death stuff. And, I, you know, I'm realizing how right they are because it's not just about, you know, everyone wants to transcend the ego. But I think there's a way of befriending the ego. And like, you know, there's, this idea, there's a lot of paradoxes to what we're talking about. There's something called effortless effort. You know, if you want to achieve this state of, uh, you know, higher consciousness or transcendence of the ego, you can't use the ego to do that. So you have to do it effortlessly. So you have to, it's called effortless effort. That's the way they call it. They call it. And I'll tell you this story, which I think is a really beautiful um, metaphor for how to deal with the ego. So get, you know, uh, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a few minutes of this story. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborers' clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. It sounds exactly like the subway, <laughs> only it's in Tokyo. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow center spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that she was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the, at the retreating back of the old woman but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could, not, I could see that on his, uh, that on, on his hands was, was cut and bleeding. Sorry, one of his hands was cut and bleeding. Typo. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I, liked, I, I like to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you're already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the, the, the chimpira, chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting to my feet. People are in danger. And if I don't do something fast, they will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha! He roared, a foreigner, like you gringo. <laughs> I don't know why I had to add that. <laughs> you need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, hey! It was ear splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s. 
this tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed del delightedly at the laborer as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clanking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Okay, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden. We sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our, how our uh, persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree had done better than I expected, though especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake out and go out to enjoy the evening. Even when it rains, he looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. So you see what he's doing, he's distracting him. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften, his fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer, my wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make this world safe for democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that, that is a difficult predicament. Indeed, sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. So I think this is such a moving story because, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, to, to really express it well. But there's something so interesting about this because we all struggle with evil. We all struggle with suffering. We all struggle with people that we think are evil or think that are doing evil things. But, you know, if anything that I, you know, my time as working as, a, you know, not yet a psychiatrist, but hopefully soon a psychiatrist when I'm in the, the psych ward or when I'm seeing patients in the hospital. And some of these people say some terrible things and have done some really terrible things. But if you need any kind of understanding, you just sit down with them for 20 minutes and you start to hear their story. And you start understanding where they're coming from. And, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to understand free will either. You know, it's such a difficult concept. But you start getting a glimpse into where people are coming from. And I'm not saying we should ever excuse evil. But I am saying that we should start bringing more understanding to evil in other people, evil in the world, and evil in ourselves. And the reason I think this is such a beautiful story, like I said, is I think it has everything to do with our ego. So, you know, they compare the mind to a stormy waters, you know, stormy oceans. And if you want to calm down the stormy oceans, what do you do? Do you take a, a hammer and start hitting the water to calm it down, to, you know, flatten it out? Of course not. Do you talk to it? Do you say words? Do you, that's just going to add more storminess. What do you do? Don't try it. <laughs> exactly. You could do that. I guess that's a good point. I didn't think of that. I'll try that next time. But uh, what do you do? You leave it alone. Just leave it alone. 
If you sit with your thoughts for long enough, you sit with your ego for long enough, and you just notice it, and you let it speak, and you, and you befriend it, maybe. And you treat it like this old man treated this drunk. Maybe you have a shot. Maybe you have a shot at really making more inroads with yourself, with your ego, with this kind of roommate that you have always talking inside your head. And instead of trying to shut him up or her up or whatever it is, instead, maybe you could take more of a friendly approach and a beautiful approach and say, hey, you know, like the old man. And I think that's so beautiful because for so, so many years, people have been talking about ego, death, ego, death. And that doesn't have to mean that you're just being mean to the ego and trying to kill it. You could also befriend it and tell it, okay, I got it from here. I'll take the reins. You can calm down. This is a safe place. You could stop here. You know, and that to me is really the essence of meditation. And it's such a beautiful way of going about the mystical experience and trying to induce that in oneself. So, you know, I, I thought that was really beautiful. And uh, if you guys have any questions or comments on that, we can talk about it. Otherwise, we could uh, talk about some other things that I think are interesting um, regarding these types of ideas. Anybody have anything? Okay. I guess I did such a good job of uh, talking about it. Nobody has anything to say. It was uh, quite moving. <laughs> thank you. I'm so glad, Charlotte. That's great. I, I, I really, I, I find it extremely moving and I have to kind of keep my, uh, my emotions in tow when I'm talking about it because it's so, it's so beautiful. Um, so now I want to discuss with you some of the different approaches that people have used to try to understand what is God, where does God come from? Um, you know, how do we, how do we relate to God? And there's so many different approaches to this. Uh, one of them that I think is really interesting is the historical approach. So I'll read you a quote from Mark Twain. He says this on the Jews. If the statistics are right, the Jews constitute, but one quarter of 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also very out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greeks and Romans followed and made a vast noise, and they were gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now and have vanished. You know that famous uh, poem, Ozymandias? It's actually an <laughs> episode title of, uh, of uh, Breaking Bad. Doc, you know that one? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. Yeah, I guess we think alike. It's amazing. Uh, You're just thinking about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm honored. And the king of kings, uh, something you almighty in despair or something. That's right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, let me, let me pull it up. I could actually do that now. Ozymandias. Such a great poem. Yeah. Um, by Percy Shelley. It's actually the, uh, the wife, the, sorry, the husband of Mary Shelley, who, um, Frankenstein? Frankenstein, exactly. So this, her, sorry. Yeah. Her husband was a poet. So this is his, uh, his poem. I think this is amazing. It's funny, I'm giving you right now a poem within a quote that I, it's just, I'm all over the place, but forgive me, I think it's very interesting. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, we actually read this in Ms. Robinson's class, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well, those passions read, right? So you see he's stumbling upon a statue buried in the sand, an ancient statue with like a, a, a big face, which yet survives stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. 
Around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Isn't that unbelievable? It's, it's the conceit of the human ego that we think that we matter so much and we think that we could build all this stuff and we could kind of survive against all odds. And this guy is saying, you know, look at all the stuff that I built and tremble before it. And there's nothing left other than the quote. Exactly. Exactly. You have to kind of balance. You don't want to be too much that way, but you also don't want to be a, a phony unholy. Uh, you know, that you don't want to be somebody who's like, oh, I'm nothing. I'm just a humble old nothing. So you have to kind of balance the two and you, you can't escape it. No matter which way you turn, you meet different kinds of people that will go one way or the other to an extreme. And you just kind of have to still the mind. And, you know, that's the beauty of Rabbi Tarfon. They say, I'll say one thing that's Jewish. Um, <laughs> Rabbi Tarfon would walk around with two different uh, things in his pockets. One pocket would say, Bishvili nevraha alam. For me, the world was created. The other pocket, it would say, like Abraham says in this week's parasha, I am but dust and ashes. And it's the balance between those two radical views that made the bitarfon. That's what the Gemara seems to be saying. And that's what we should be thinking. I agree. No, meaning literally I agree. And that's what we discussed last week is that the right brain, you know, the, the right hemisphere of the brain is better at dealing with paradoxes and contradictions than the left hemisphere. Left hemisphere is so analytical, can't handle contradictions, but the right hemisphere can sit with them. and can sit with the idea that I'm a, a limited human, but I'm also a manifestation of God at the same time. I'm finite, but I'm also infinite. How could it be? Well, it is, you know, that's kind of the, the, the way that it is. And just to, to round out the uh, Mark Twain quote, the Jews saw them all. So you can think about all the Ozymandias and all those unbelievable Ashur, Bavel, Parasya, Van, Roma, no matter what it is. The Jews saw, saw them all, survived them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert but aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jews. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? It was in 1897 he said that. And that's unbelievable to me because a lot of people look at this and they say, well, there's something very unique about the Jewish people. And I think Rabbi Yudha Levi was very known for seeing a lot of depth and a lot of beauty and seeing God, not like Harambam. Harambam looked for God in the philosophical realm and trying to prove God rationally. Uh, Levi was more of relating to God through history and through the storyline. And, you know, for many years, I, I struggled with that. I said, you know, it's a little ridiculous to try to say, oh, we're special. We're the chosen people. I, I, I think it's beautiful to say we're chosen in order to help people. Does, I always make this analogy. Does a second grade teacher look back at her second grade and say, you fools, I'm chosen to be better than all. You know, I'm chosen because I have a job to do. I have a job to teach all of you. And that's kind of like the Mamlichet Kohanim Begoy Kadosh idea that Am Yisrael is supposed to be that. Um, so I think that's, that's a, a, a wonderful way of looking at it. And I, I don't think anything's wrong with that. But I think even more than that, I think Rabbi Yudha Levi's onto something. Because even if it's not absolutely true, and it's not absolutely true that, okay, you could prove God now through Am Yisrael being so amazing. You know, Jordan Peterson quotes this study that Jewish people, at least, sorry, Ashkenazi Jewish people, are um, one standard deviation ahead of everybody else in terms of IQ. So they're, they're 15 IQ points. So meaning their IQ of the average Ashkenazi Jew is 115. The IQ of everybody else, 100. So you look, if that's going to happen, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the Jews, Jewish privilege, white privileges. I'm not saying white, maybe white privilege is different, but at least Jewish privilege. When you have people that are just smarter you know, based on their population, statistically, it makes sense that they're going to have better outcomes in terms of their, of their financial wealth. Or you their, sure the Jews make that IQ test? Oh, oh, that's a good point. Maybe they put all Talmud stuff in there. You know, they stuck. <laughs> they stuck in. What does Tosafot say on that plummet bed? Exactly. You know. Yeah. Exactly. You're right. But because the Sefaradim were not such good students, <laughs> that's what it must mean. But it's it's amazing to me that that's the case. But there are populations that are genetically. There are populations that are taller. All yep. of them yeah, are taller. 100%. They have better physique. It's, 
That's just genetics. Like That's... Ben Shapiro says, how many Jewish NBA players are there? Exactly. They say anything <laughs> about people that are taller, but there's true. 100%. And I, I think saw a study on the same topic. It was a survey. And mm -hmm. they said, uh, you know, should we have affirmative action for, you know, this, for that, for different types of things? And it was on a college survey, but I think this is reflective of public opinion. And everyone said, yes, you know, we should have like equal people in management of, you know, different races, police, reflecting the community, et cetera. But yeah. when you said you know, for basketball teams, should we have representation of all the, uh, the races? They said, no, you know, we shouldn't have that mm -hmm. for basketball. <laughs> so sports. Yeah. It's kind of a, a catch 22 when you, when you kind of catch them and, uh, and that, you know, it, it's it, you're right. I, I agree with you. And, and one other point that I want to make from, from uh, on this idea, Jonathan Haidt has a great book, uh, the righteous mind and also the happiness hypothesis. And throughout these books, he talks a lot about differences between right wingers and left wingers and left wingers love this universalism. And it's so beautiful. What does John Lennon say, Stephen? Right. What if there's no countries or right? what if there's no people? What if there were no separations between all of us? And, uh, you know, it rubs a lot of us the wrong way when certain people are too prideful of their people and like people are so ethnocentric and so, and it, it, it could border on racism a lot of the time, if you're so pro-Jewish and you see Jews as so special and then, and you say, all right, so everybody else is just lousy and they're just kind of secondary, you know, they're in like the worst form of it is people say, oh, they're, they're, they're going to beg to be our slaves one day. I know. I, I don't know what the Midrash meant by that, but I guess it's, it's, I think there should be some kind of interpretation and be taken in its context rather than just claiming that as that's the foreign policy of the Jewish people for eons and forever and ever and ever. I think that's absurd. But the beauty is that it doesn't have to be to that extreme of universalism only because when you're so universal and you don't allow for peoplehood, you lose a certain beauty of the nuances of difference, that there is a particularism to tribalism. And there's nothing wrong with it. As long as you kind of keep it in check in a certain way, there's a balance. There's a beauty in Jewish pride. There's a beauty in having a tradition that you care about and saying, my grandfather, Abraham, stood first at that Kamish spot. Let me do the same thing. So I think that's just a, a beautiful idea. And I think in that way, I really can relate to him, that I can find God through my tradition in that way, not in a, in a philosophical, not in a philosophical, absolute way that you need to prove God through history of the Jewish people. I think if you do that, you're barking up the wrong tree. But if you say, let me open my heart to the beautiful stories that my ancestors are regaling me with. So that's something that I think is, is the key point here, that the path towards God is not through only the intellect and the left brain. I think there's a place for that. But if that's your, your only way of you know, relating to reality, then you got a problem because there's also the right brain. There's also the relational part of the, of the human being, like Genesis 1 and 2 has, you know, man as majestic man in Genesis 1 versus man as relational kind of a man in Genesis 2. The point is we're supposed to be at the, in the, at the balance place between these two. And if you use your heart to understand God through history, that's a totally different thing than using your intellect to prove God through history. So I think that's just an interesting idea. Um, now I want to discuss with you a quote from Einstein that my rabbi Rav Gedalia put uh, on his website, The Four Questions of Judaism. I highly recommend you check it out if you, if you are interested in some of these ideas. He has unbelievable articles about a whole you know, variety of different things. I think Dr. Nasser checked it out a couple of years ago and really liked it. Um, so this is the quote that he brings down from Einstein. I'm, I'm quoting it like it's Gemara. Um, <laughs> Mystery is not restricted to whodunits. It is waiting for us all, lurking in hidden corners and blazing in the sunlight. It is found both in mathematical equations and in the eyes of a loved one. The starry sky shines with it, but only if one is willing to look and listen. Who isn't captivated by the aura of mystery? Who doesn't crave that feeling of wonder, that sense of beauty that defies description and explanation? Why don't we seek it more? Why are we so often resistant to its call? The call of mystery, right? The most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead and his eyes are dimmed. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion, 
a knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity, saying the, the things that we cannot quite grasp. And it's, I don't think it's just God of the gaps that he's talking about, which means, oh, yeah, God is those things that are no longer able to be explained. Like the Egyptians said, oh, it's by Elohim he, when it was something that they, their mechashifim couldn't do. Rabbi Sachs has a great article on that, how a lot of people, they try to say, oh, the flagellum of a bacterium proves God because we can't explain it through uh, natural selection. It's like, oh, really, you find God in that little one corner, but everything else is not, is not God? Like, it's just an absurd tree to bark up. So I don't think he's right, saying... So if we found out what that was for, then... Exactly. And we could probably one day find a mechanism for how a flagellum uh, produced. I don't think it was the one thing that God said, I, I got you. You know, if you find the God in that, it has a lot to do with the way your parents raised you, or maybe your, your older brother like mine that played a lot of tricks on you, or something like that, because if that's the way you view God, there's some kind of complex going on. But if you need uh, a psych referral, come to me in a few years. Um, so there, the this is it's so amazing that he's saying there's this ability of mystery to open us up to a different way of thinking and he's saying you kind of have to leave behind this is einstein he's like the smartest guy ever his name literally means genius and he's saying there's a point at which you got to leave reason behind and just let it be and just stand in awe and marvel at the mystery of the fact of existence so what does he say um, which only in their most primitive forms accessible. Now, it is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity. In this sense, and only this sense, I am a deeply religious man. You might not have known this. I am satisfied with the mystery of life's eternity and with a knowledge, a sense of the marvelous structure of existence, as well as the humble attempt to understand even a tiny portion of the reason that manifests itself in nature. I think what he's saying is that the real path towards God is not through, you know, studying the equation itself or learning the, the science itself. I mean, that's beautiful. But just the very fact that there is a science to learn. So now listen to this quote before I delve further into it. I don't want to do it any harm. Stephen Hawking, Brief History of Time. Amazing quote here at the end of his book. And if you don't know, so Stephen Hawking, if you ever, I saw actually with Saul in Israel, you know, this, the, the theory of everything is the name of the movie in English, amazing movie about Hawking's life. And he says that he's, his goal was to unite all the four forces of physics under one unified theory. And if he could do that, he says, then I would be able to read the mind of God. And I would no, no longer have a need for God if I could find this one theory to unite the nuclear weak force, the nuclear strong force, electromagnetism, and gravity. If I could unite all of those with one theory, then I no longer need God. Oh, Dr. Nasser, I know you're about to read this book. I'm sorry for spoiling it. No, I read it. You read it. Unbelievable. The guy reads books like it's drinking water. Um, so, <laughs> exactly. I like that. Um, so he says, now listen to what he says at the end of the book. So he was an atheist, but maybe. So first of all, he failed. Yeah. He couldn't do it, just to be clear. Yeah. So, so say again, Doc. Yeah. yeah, just to be clear, he failed. Exactly. He, he did fail. He failed. So we still don't have a unified theory of everything. He doesn't have one. He didn't get one. But that doesn't mean that one day if string theory, which I'm reading now, is amazing. That could be the unified theory. That doesn't mean that we no longer need this idea of a God because Hawking is not, a, he's, he's an atheist to a, what a lot of people would call God. But in my view, he's really not an atheist. He's more in line with my thinking than most, you know, than, than, than what I would say I would look at other religious people. And I would say I agree more with Hawking on this philosophical point. Please don't take that sound, sound bite out of context. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Well, this shul I won't get kicked out of. Maybe. But other shuls I'll get uh, kicked out of. Listen, yeah, I don't want to. Exactly. Thank you. Um, but Hawking makes these, this unbelievable statement. What does he say? Even if. There is only one possible unified theory. It is just a set of rules and equations. 
What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? That, to me, is where I find God. That question, really, it's all you need. Why should there be something rather than nothing? And so this, this reminds me of Rabbi Sachs. And, you know, we read a lot of books that all kind of say the same thing. But remember, yeah. the meaning of the system cannot be uh, found within the system. So we could go. look and we could learn every little thing about the laws of the universe. And maybe we will. Maybe we will become so advanced. We'll understand black holes. We'll understand the Big Bang. We'll understand the singularity. We'll find out that there's a multiverse. We'll have these equations. We'll be able yeah. to travel you know, interstellar, wormholes, the whole deal. But we still won't know why we were yep. here. We're still going to have that quest for what is the purpose. That, that is something that, you know, it's, it's like you just said with the spiritual experience. You, you can describe it. You can think about it. You may have brief, you know, moments of clarity, but it is something that is just, you can't keep it. You know, you can't, uh, it's, not, it's not achievable. It's something we're always striving for. And, you know, it kind of makes it, not funny, but I guess you can poke fun as, at those with a rigorous mindset that, oh, no, you know, the world has to be 5,000 years old. Oh, no, you know, the dinosaurs, it's not, I don't see it in, in the black and white, you know, so they can't exist. If the dinosaurs exist, that, that's an affront to God. If the world is older, you know, then, then how could we believe in God? If, you know, if we can fly, you know, in a plane like the birds, then, you know, then we're not natural humans, you know, humans weren't meant to do that. So, you know, whatever, or however, you know, the traditionalists kind of seek to constrain us because they say, you know, you don't want to be too much like God. You don't want to step on God's footsteps. You want, you, you want to be, you know, stay in your lane. Um, I don't know if you kind of get what I'm saying, but at the end 100%. of the day, it doesn't really matter. We can continue to expand our minds and our knowledge and have a better understanding of the universe, but it doesn't have to detract from our spirituality. And Hawking's and Einstein are perfect examples of that. They still had, mm -hmm. yes, okay, maybe, you know, they weren't going to, to synagogue or, or uh, you know, whatever, uh, ritual observance, but, you know, there's some, that's not the only way of, of worship, uh, in my opinion, anyway. A hundred percent. I agree. And it's, it's uh, like they always say, if God is the author of the Torah and he's also the author of the world, then why not engage in the world and see God in that world? And I think, that's the way to do it. And, and uh, you said Rabbi Sachs. I was thinking of Rabbi uh, Heschel, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who has this idea of radical amazement, where he says that in every given moment, the proper response to existence is, oh, my God, I can't believe there's something. I mean, now, why don't we do that? Because we're so used to it all the time. But in an ideal world, we would be able to just be radically amazed all the time, just at the very fact of existence itself. Because it didn't have to be this way. Um, and I, 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 there's this idea from Natan Aviezer. He says, you know, let me take out a dollar from my pocket. And I, and I look at it and I say, the serial number is QX745. Whole long serial number. I say, what was the chances it would be that serial number? Oh, my God. Well, it's like you just read it off. It's, the chances were one in one because you just read off that serial number. And it's like, okay, so that's very often how people try to look at this stuff and they try to prove God through saying, look, it's, uh, it's, it's, this is a retrospective argument. But not that Aviezer says something interesting. And this is something I can't quite wrap my head around yet. I don't know. The jury's still out for me on this. But he says the existence of the universe or of the cosmos is not like taking the dollar out and then reading it. Because of what we know about physics of just six numbers and all that stuff, he's saying, it's like me saying, Stephen, the next dollar you're going to take out of your pocket is going to be WX7Q56489. And that is radical. And that is amazing. You know, if it happens, I'll, I'll play lottery tonight 100%. Somebody's got to give me money for that. But, but so, so he says that the existence of the universe is more like that. That it, it's just intuitively. You look at it and say, what, what's going on here? Hold on a second. I know... I, so we're being had. Something's going on here. There's something happening that we're not quite. It's so imminent to what's going on at this very moment. And that's why there's this technique. Some people try to like point this way. And like you say, or what is it pointing to? It's pointing to that empty space behind yourself. And you try to 
there's these different um, mechanisms that people try to use for sudden enlightenment, just to realize that the very fact of there being something is already all you need to know regarding this incredibleness of what's going on. And, you know, the Stoics have a beautiful meditation that they, they do, which is called negative visualization, that at any given moment, you can just imagine that something you really care about or everything, imagine it's not there, and then restore it to its existence and see how much you appreciate that it's there. It's a beautiful way of, uh, of relating to reality or to have, uh, you know, re- uh, perspective retrospection, which is you look to the, to the future and you say, and one day in the future right now is going to be the good old days. So I'm going to look, uh, look at back and say, you remember those days in Sephardic when I used to give classes? And I used to say whatever the heck I wanted and nobody put me in Haidem yet. That was a great time. I really enjoyed it. And it's, gonna, it's such a fun, funny thing to be able to do. And there's these little techniques that we can use to tr- just remind ourselves subtly in any given moment, like, hey, this is pretty wild. It's pretty radical that, that there is something rather than nothing. And I think part of, you know, cultivating a, an understanding of what it means to be a human being or what it means to be around, you're kind of missing something if you don't address all this stuff. And it's funny because this is like pre-ABCs, what I'm discussing right now. It's so prior to anything else that you probably would learn in another class. And yet I enjoyed it so much because it helps me relate to the world with more awe and with more mystery and with more beauty. And I invite you guys to do the same, you know, and, and uh, I think we're running out of time, but until I guess, until the rabbi stops me, but, but there's, there's such a beauty to be being able to live out your life this way, you know, and I'll, I'll end with this Rabbi Shalom Carmi. I read a great pamphlet of his a few years ago, about 22 pages. He's a rabbi in YU. And he says, you know, one of his students went off the dead. One of his students decided that he's no longer going to be uh, religious. Sorry, no, he, he, he's orthoprax. He decided he doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but he continues doing the things, but he doesn't want to do them anymore. He doesn't want to practice Judaism anymore because he logically re- figured out that this all, you know, it's not absolute truth. That was his claim. And Rabbi Karmi writes a beautiful letter back to the student saying, Mr. Student, you're using only these these logical faculties of your mind but what about the emotional faculties what about the logic of the heart that you're you know failing to talk about and his his he's using logic to prove this to the student he's saying listen you're trying to say that the brain is this amazing thing that logic is producing but at the end of the day the whole brain evolved as as a package deal the entire brain so if you're going to use one part of the brain as a means for truth then you have to take it as a package deal and use all the parts of the brain as a means to truth because the brain is not an absolute truth seeker. It evolved for propagating the existence of the species. So if you're going to leave out these other faculties of the brain, like emotion and the heart and things like that, you're not doing justice to real truth. I think that's brilliant. I think that's something that you can answer to any person who's trying to only be logical. And like one of my good friends always likes to say is that a lot of these philosophers were big nerds. You know, they just had no lives and they had no friends and they might have been very smart, but they really didn't have balanced lives, you know, and, and that's something to aspire to. So I'll leave you with that, that a lot of these, uh, you know, philosophers were losers. Um, and if that ever bothers you, then, you know, don't only be logical, also seek to involve your heart in the world. And, you know, uh, that's something I work on myself and I invite all you guys to that. So uh, Thank you so much for coming. Zaku Baruch.